Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I am also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I am also, also speaking to you from the futuristic future year of 2018. Not a typo. 2018. Yeah, I, I live in L.A., and we are one year from the year... LA's Blade Runner is set in. I remember also reading many sci-fi paperbacks as a child where the settings were before 2018 and had robots and flying cars and moon bases built in 1999. Now people born in the year 1999 are adults. It's crazy. Anyway, we all live in the distant future now. Let's stop and smell the future roses and appreciate it. This week's episode appreciates a ton of things because we're ringing in the new year with a celebration of strong starts. Awesome beginnings to start your new year right. That's what we're up to today. What are the best first lines, first scenes, first episodes of all time? What are incredible historical firsts that boggle the mind? And we're going to get into those with my guests, Cracked Editors, Writers, and more, Christy Harrison and Syriac Lamar. They'll be calling into a podcast. We'll then beam that out to you because, again, this is the future and it's the best. We also sourced some of our ideas from you on Twitter through my handle at Alex Schmitty and also at Cracked. And so our guest today, besides Christy and Syriac, is you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for the fun ideas. It's a really good time. And please sit back or continue to party hard for New Year's Eve by listening to a podcast. That's, I mean, you're great. That's awesome. Anyway, enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Christy Harrison, Syriac Lamar, and you. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. We are joined on the phone by Cracked Zone, Christy Harrison. Hey, Christy. Hello. Hey, hello. And we're also joined on the phone as well by Cracked's own Syriac Lamar. Welcome to the show. I think this is your first time. It is. Great to be here, Alex. Oh, yeah. yeah now your voice is in the world. It's, it's exciting. Here we go. Oh. <laughs> well, uh, hey, happy 2018, you guys. Thank you for coming on. I, I think we all thought it would be very fun to get into some awesome beginnings, uh, things that started incredibly well for starting off people's new year. Like, let's have a fun time with it. In the meantime, yeah. we uh, are not just joined by ourselves. We're, we're also joined by a lot of ideas and fun and pitches from just friendly people on Twitter. We crowdsource some other options for these different things. Why don't we start at the most simple level? Uh, we tried to Rolodex some great first lines from things, be it books or music or anything else. I think let's lead. Let's be a little multimedia. Let's start off with a clip of a song that Christy picked out. Christy, do you want to kind of intro this song before we hear it? No, let's just play it. Oh, yeah, let's go. All right. I'm getting tired of your shit. You don't ever buy me nothing. I assume we're waiting to hear it. Like, you weren't waiting for me to, like, talk about it. <laughs> See, every uh, so I was listening to the song Tyrone by Erica Badu, and the opening line is what inspired this whole thing because I, I thought it was just such an amazing, bold beginning of a story where you know who's talking and who she's talking to. and Yeah, it's, all right, I'm getting tired of your shit. Uh, you don't never buy me nothing. See, every time you come around, you got to bring Jim, James, Paul, and Tyrone. So I 
ended at you'll never buy me nothing because like the opening line makes me think that she's talking to maybe a cheater, maybe somebody who's just abusive or a really bad person. And then the, no, the, the complaint is you don't ever buy me nothing. Oh. And this whole song is set up over the pettiest grievance that you can have against someone you're in a relationship with. And she lets it stand. Like she just, she just, she makes your statement, you don't ever buy me nothing, and that's it. That's what we're good. And then she just, like, lays out her case about <laughs> this person who never buys her anything, which is code for you take advantage of me or, you know, I'm putting more into this relationship than you are. It's not actually about – because I've made this complaint. It was it felt very real. I've made this complaint <laughs> many times over 20 years of marriage. I told the line to my husband because I said, oh, no, they're going to do a podcast because I suggested this line. <laughs> and, and he was like, eh, you know, I didn't really feel it. And then I played it for him, which is why I wanted to make sure everybody could hear it because he caught something that I didn't realize because I'm not like a music listener. She gives the line, you don't ever buy me nothing, and then she stops. Like, there, you have to wait for the next, I don't know how many bars or whatever. She does it. She makes you ingest and sit on that line <laughs> and, and she just lets it stand yeah. and it's that waiting the silence after that makes it more powerful and yeah it's just a bold line it's nothing like a real fight because in a real fight you would start with all the caveats like I know you're having a hard time right now or we've been having a hard time or you know you kind of ease your other person into what you're really mad about and that's just is just gets right into it. It's like a little um, mic drop, like a little mini mic drop. <laughs> so, that was my favorite. I really like the way, like you said, it gets right into it. With any song, I think I, I was thinking about this, the first lines, there's sort of two ways to do it. You either set a scene, like you set up what the characters and the narrative of the song are doing, or you set up a vibe mm -hmm. immediately. Like you just express an emotion mm -hmm. and then we find out who has it later. And this one, like a few other songs, does both right away. Like we just get right to it. You'd emailed it. I didn't know exactly why you liked it. And, and that's really cool that that kind of two-step going on there is your thing. That's really, that's really fun. And I hope, I hope listeners do uh, get a chance, not right now, I mean, I listen to the podcast, but later, go watch the video because she's pregnant and she's just powerful to watch anyway because she's, she's like an actress and she's in character and she's just mesmerizing to watch. And uh, so people need to find that clip after. Oh, we'll footnote. We will footnote? Oh, yeah. It'll be there. Well, it did. That song did get me thinking about a couple of other songs that I've always had a, a fan theory about the song Rocket Man by Elton John, which is that Ooh. it's a sci-fi version of Wichita Lineman by Glenn Campbell. It's just, ah. They're both about people doing like manual labor kind of jobs and missing the person they love. It's just uh, Elton John, he goes to space instead of Kansas. And, and both of them just open very, very simply with like a working man just talking about, I'm, I'm a lineman for the county, I drive around. Or in Rocket Man's case, like she packed my bags, I have a flight, we need to go to go to the flight, you know. And then uh, they sort of open up from there, and it's sort of a rolling, rolling thing. And, and the first line is almost sort of a trick. It's like, oh, this whole song is going to be about a guy who clocks in and out of work. Like, really? That's all I'm going to get out of this? And then you get the whole rest from there. What's the line? I don't know. The first line is. Yeah, it's as simple as I am a lineman for the county, and I drive the main road. 
And he just, for the first chunk of the the song, just keeps talking about, like, the work of checking power lines to see if they're going to hold up in weather, (laughs) which is, like, almost (laughs) antique. Like, I don't even know who does that now. Probably somebody. I am a lineman for the county And I drive the main road Searching in the sun yeah, that's a great theory, though, in the book up in the sky. Yeah, because uh, Elton John and Rocket Man is clearly not running a station or anything. He's clearly just going into space to mine an asteroid or something. and uh, <laughs> Or I think he's on Mars, something like that. And, uh, it's, it's not meaningful uh, work. <laughs> right, he's just a working man, and he has to go do it outside of the planet. It's, it's maximum lonely, you know? She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. And he gets it since he doesn't understand. He says, literally, I don't understand what I'm doing. Like, I'm just doing my job. I don't... Right? What does he say? I don't... All this science, I don't understand. He's so not even a scientist. <laughs> We've got more first lines to look at. Let's also talk about movies. Um, Syriac, you uh, picked out, as we were thinking about what are the best first scenes of a movie or first moments of a movie, you have a great theory about The Thing, which is a, a really good time. I think that The Thing um, is not only a great horror movie, it's not only a great action movie, it's a whodunit. It's also a really good metaphor for New Year's and change. And it, it kind of functions the holiday movie. Um, for those of you who are not... <laughs> Well, you're, it, it, there, there are some good holiday themes to the thing, which I think we can all learn. You know, there's shape-shifting and body-changing. But anyway, uh, The Thing is a uh, <laughs> film by John Carpenter, directed by John Carpenter in the 80s. Uh, I believe it was 82. I'm probably wrong there. But for those of you who are not familiar with the conceit of The Thing, it involves a shape-shifting alien taking over a small Antarctic weather station and the scientists and workers there having to uh, confront the monster as it slowly uh, consumes their bodies and um, takes their personalities and mannerisms, only intermittently um, breaking out into this just horrible biomorphic mass and consuming them full of spider legs and eyes and tentacles. It's, it's really a real stunner <laughs> of a film. Yeah, Great film. yeah. Great film. As, as I understand it, a monster eats a bunch of scientists. Yes, and, and he becomes a scientist and he enjoys their sweaters and their and their um, postures. It's, 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 it's also riveting. It's, it's a great, it's actually a great movie. I'm, yeah. I'm you know, messing around here, but yeah, as, as far as the opening shot goes, um, the opening shot of the film, which is, by the way, is scored by Ennio Morricone in a um, departure from John Carpenter, usually scoring his films. It's uh, begins with a UFO plummeting through space uh, and landing on earth, you know, thousands or millions of years ago or what have you. Um, I actually, don't like this shot because I think that the movie works pretty effectively without the kind of heads up that, oh, a UFO is involved in some way. I think the unfolding of the thing and the audience can figure it out as it goes along. But anyway, I'm digressing here. Uh, There's a sequence and it's a very disturbing sequence uh, over the uh, Antarctic glaciers, which is actually British Columbia. And it involves a, uh, a a man in a helicopter, which who we will later find out is uh, the Norwegian scientist chasing the thing who has assumed the form of a sled dog. And uh, it's just this beautiful shot of, you know, this glaciers and this kind of just utter blankness about it. Yeah. And then this very disturbing, disconcerting visual of a um, 
of men in a helicopter with guns uh, shooting at a dog. It's it's a great, just great enigmatic mm. opening shot. I think it also is a really good metaphor for, you know, what the thing wishes to achieve because the thing's goal isn't ever really explained in the course of the film. The thing's goal, but it's, you know, largely assumed that it's just to absorb all organic matter in the galaxy and make all living creatures, you know, part of the kingdom of the thing, you know? So it's this just great blank expanse, which I think is a really good way to kind of think of the thing's goals. But, but the movie also, I think, is a really good metaphor on the power of change. Uh, would you like to hear that theory? <laughs> yes, because I'm confused. Are we the monster in this metaphor? Or are we the, or I'm sorry, the thing? Or are we the... Just maybe we should become the monster. That's, that is the quote-unquote thing. I feel like I feel like we're getting into like a, a cable news talking head debate that's like pro and anti monster, and I'm for it. Let's do it. It's kind of it's kind of opaque what the thing's goal actually is. The thing um, is he is it operating simply out of survival instinct. It it also absorbs the knowledge and the memories of its victim, of its victims. Uh, it's also kind of unclear if these are pure copies or to what degree actual host DNA or memories or personality is maintained within the, you know, the greater parasitical thing structure. Hmm. So, but the thing never brings up, which I actually think is a fascinating possibility is what if it's really great to be part of the thing? (laughs) What if being part of the thing is like being in a video store and being able to rent every movie you want, only it's like, I'm a dog. I'm, my best friend at this weather station. I'm like 10,000 other alien species. What if it's like the entirety of human experience and it totally rules? I think that's a possibility the thing doesn't make up. And let's look what the guys in the thing were doing prior to the arrival of the thing. You see, when the thing shows up, they're just in this weather station, in their jammies, farting, getting drunk, not bathing. There are no women in the movie. Um, Adrian Barbeau, is, uh, who was married to John Carpenter at the time, uh, voices Kurt Russell's chess-playing computer. Um, and it's just this kind of stinky, stinky, cramped, cramped little room full of men just farting and bickering and trapped. And it's, it's a har- it would be a horrible place to live. Um, yeah. Whereas outside, you have the thing as a dog running on a glacier, representing <laughs> freedom and <laughs> freedom and boundless potential. And... You know, uh, it's really a stirring juxtaposition of shots. You have this great, these beautiful nature shots, and then it immediately Carpenter cuts to these men just, you know, you know, inhaling their own fumes all day. It's just these stinking, farting <laughs> men. And you know, when the thing shows up, it's kind of a big, kinky, sexy affair. There's legs, there's goo, <laughs> there's mitosis. It's all happening, you know. So, hmm. I guess what I'm trying to get at is. The thing is kind of a movie I think we should all look at about accepting change and, you know, maybe maybe just accepting that if you're going to become part of a greater alien superstructure of, of you know, combined intelligences, just give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what so to do with that information. <laughs> that's my feeling it thing. Tells me, it tells us a lot about you. I want to go in and watch the movie, but I feel like I don't know if I should be worried about you or if I should take this and like just kind of sit on it for a little bit and think about it. Maybe I do want to become a part of a big alien consciousness. It's also a great, as a great New Year's movie, simply because, you know, you have the snow, you have the cold, 
you know, which, right. you know, many parts of the world, that's, you know, where the holidays are mm-hmm. celebrated. But it also is kind of a, it's kind of a bleak message about change, but it also can be a really affirming one, you know, depending on how deep down the rabbit hole you want to get. You probably don't have a lot to worry about when you're, when you're part of an alien consciousness. Like, it's, all your troubles are probably over at that point, I guess. And Yeah, worst case scenario, you're in a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It could actually be really educational, you know? It's, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I think the movie doesn't bring up that possibility. So, um, and, and, of course, when the thing starts turning into spiders and goblins and what, whatever, you know, manner of horrors that the thing becomes, um, they, they immediately try to torch it and light it on fire. And, you know, you can't blame the thing for lashing out like that. He's just doing his thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> Who amongst us, when lit on fire, will not complain? Yeah. <laughs> and and not, not, not to talk too much about the thing, but one of the things I love about Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy 2 is basically it takes the whole motif of the thing of the, you know, Kurt Russell versus the body snatcher and makes like Kurt Russell the, you know, universal intelligence who wants to absorb everything. I thought that was like such yeah. a delightful thing. Oh, interesting. I hadn't thought about it's it. A, it's a really cool Later. He's the thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a really it's a really cool callback. I, I think that uh, James Gunn was really smart, you know, and screenwriters been doing so. That movie that movie also has Glenn Campbell on the soundtrack. I think it's the through line to this whole episode. I think this is secretly <laughs> oh my God. Like Guardians it, of the it, Galaxy it Two Southern episode. Nights? It is Southern Nights. Yeah, I love. Oh yeah, I love that. <laughs> Not to again harp on the thing. I think if you had no idea what the thing was about, say you missed all the previews, you missed, you know, you didn't really follow John Carpenter's career. If you watch this movie, just kind of walking in and blind, it must have been terrifying because the special effects are really unsettling in it. Oh, really? Oh, maybe I shouldn't watch it because I don't like horror movies. I'd I'd say it's fully horror. I'd, I'd say that. Yeah, I think I think when a movie is science fictiony, we sort of assume it's not also horror, or at least not fully that. And it's it's totally got that. I think. Yeah. Yeah, a, a man's head turns into a spider, which probably puts it squarely in the horror camp. Okay. <laughs> and according to Syriac, that guy liked it. He was happy about it. Yeah, Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. I don't know. We we never hear testimonials from the <laughs> victims. So it's one. That's one of my favorite kinds of theories where we just empathize with the monster of the horror movie. Obviously, there's a few horror things where that's in the text, in particular Frankenstein. But there's other. There's a meme recently with a movie called The Babadook from a few years ago. Have you guys seen The Babadook? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the theory is that The Babadook is a gay pride icon. And that's canon, and that's what the, which is not what the movie's about. Uh, but it's a very funny uh, idea to me, just that this, like, Australian basement monster that represents pain is also, like, championing the rights of people. Really great. Really fun. <laughs> you know, people contain multitudes, you know? Even Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I also, I love that that theory uh, of yours, Syriac, about the thing, it springs from that first shot, from that first moment. Uh, I didn't know it was in British Columbia, too. That's cool. Uh, uh, good for Canada looking yeah, that it's, way. It's, it's actually really interesting, too, because if you see, if you, uh, you know, watch uh, some behind-the-scenes stuff about how the movie was filmed, you can see that there's the tr- they basically had to build one of the camps um, opposite the tree line. So here's this kind of, icy, frozen, desolate camp on the other side is just the beauty of Canada. It's going mm-hmm. everywhere, just all over the place. Well, also, I, I'm trying to think of other 
horror movies I've seen recently where the first shot or moment is so crucial, uh, like Get Out jumps to mind because you see oh, yeah, yeah. It, it pays off. The guy pays off later. I won't spoil it for people, but the guy who gets abducted in the beginning, it feels like you're seeing how this situation went every other time for hundreds of years or, or decades, I guess. And uh, and it's just a fantastic like microcosm before we get into the story. I want to throw to a Twitter suggestion. This is from at Ed underscore Mungai. He said, as far as first shots or scenes of movies go, Raising Arizona is his all-time favorite because they do that great montage of Nicolas Cage getting arrested and arrested and falling for Holly Hunter. And there's that like fun, I want to say it's like banjo with a kind of yodely thing soundtrack. Mm -hmm. like you're in the movie for a while before you get that opening Raising Arizona shot or like the title credits, right? Yeah, yeah. I think like the title comes a little later, but it uh, it's a, just a very propulsive like it's it's sort of like the movie Up where all of the backstory gets delivered mm. over several minutes, but it's maybe the most compelling minutes of the entire thing. Like It just makes the whole rest of the movie gripping because you're so invested in mm-hmm. how they set you up. I was going to say to someone else on Twitter, I think I, I don't know if I got the name. They suggested um, the Blues Brothers opening montage, to, or the, not opening montage, the opening um, where, where he gets out of jail. I wish I'd spotted that tweet. I love the Blues Brothers. It's like it's like the Chicago national anthem. It's great. That he gets out of jail, he they go through all the contents of his of his wallet, and it's not until um, Elwood shows up. Yeah, Elwood shows up at the, outside the jail, and they come out and meet. That the music starts, and that she's Papa Katie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah, there's so much story in it. I think, and that, that's really what pays it off for me is like you um, there's uh, a lot of character and a lot of story immediately and you can do that in a movie and not everybody does Uh, there are other ones that just kind of start and that's very frustrating (laughs) because they've made this whole movie think it through so basically what you're saying about the intro to something like raising arizona up uh, i I was watching last jedi the other day and it makes me realize well the the star wars movies they really have this built-in narrative cheat to them that audiences come to expect which is the opening crawl it's the you know, rundown of the last anywhere from, you know, years to centuries in the Star Wars universe. And no other film has the luxury of that kind of info dump. Uh, If you had a rom-com or a uh, comedy, it's like, these men have been friends for many years, but at the lake house, they're going to have their friendship tested by a sexy neighbor. No, that that would not happen. I actually haven't quite seen Star Wars yet. I'm saving it for Christmas Day. We're taping it before that. Uh, it is a thing where I'm going to go into that theater excited to read. Like I'm really looking forward yeah. to doing some reading. <laughs> and no one is ever excited to do reading. You know what I mean? That's amazing. The whole public is on board. Historical dramas will give you, you, you get to see a backstory with a historical drama, like, or, uh, oh, yeah. I don't know. So like if you're watching a World War II, Gone with the Wind has like a beautiful, um, and the time of the South. And I mean, like they give you some backstory and then they start, but you're right. Like Blues Brothers had to work really hard to pack in all that information for their viewer. George Lucas just, you know, writes it. Yeah. He just, he lets the music go and he tilts it tilts the text and then we're all like this is the best this is awesome like the historical movie i'm like we get it napoleon right star wars i'm like really the galactic senate no way (laughs) who cares it's silly 
<laughs> I mean, I don't even like Star Wars, and it's pretty. It is pretty, but I love that you're calling it the cheese. A lot of people called out Star Wars for opening shots. Of all the movie shot ones, uh, the start of A New Hope, not the text, but the, uh, the the Princess Leia's small ship fleeing from a Star Destroyer was probably the number one pick here. And uh, I'm not surprised. It's it's It really uh, makes the whole series go, I guess. It, it really uh, sets you up strong. And it's also, it's so strong that a couple other people suggested, including at Joe Wago, W-A-G-O, uh, suggested Spaceballs. It's, they're doing just a very funny joke about the most iconic opening uh, maneuver of all time. It's great. <laughs> I don't know about you guys. Sometimes I see a movie after its time in theaters, long after, and I, I wish I could have seen it with an audience. Like, I really wish I could have seen Spaceballs, which, if people don't know, the beginning of Spaceballs is just like the thing in A New Hope where a small ship flees a much larger ship, but in Spaceballs, the larger ship just goes on way, way too long. It's just way, way, way too large of a ship. And I really wish I had been in a theater for those, like, rolling laughs of a crowd of people starting to figure out what the joke is and then it's gone on too long and then it's funny because it's gone on too long it'd be great let's look at a let's look at a couple other movie openings before we move on to something else there's one i want to call out just because it's a movie that i don't think a lot of people saw and also it's the strongest part of the movie it's from a couple years ago it's called i saw the light and it's a biopic Mm -hmm. of hank williams uh, starring tom hiddleston as the country singer hank williams the movie is like fine it's it's okay it begins with just mm-hmm. a single long rotating shot around Tom Hiddleston sitting alone on a stool performing a Hank Williams song with like no instrumental accompaniment to it at all. Mm-hmm. And it feels like the demo reel that they shot to get the movie made. Like they just wanted to prove how good <laughs> Tom Hiddleston can do Hank Williams. And if I had seen that and I was a studio head, I would have done the Fry from Futurama thing. I would have just been like, here's my money, quick. Like, just get shooting. Like, where's a camera, you know? I tried so hard, my dear, to show That you're my every dream Yet you're afraid each thing I do is just some evil scheme. It's really, it's a really bold, cool way to start a biopic of someone just uh, kind of depicting their art in the starkest way you can. I saw that you put that last night, so I, I watched it, and it was, it was very beautiful. I had also forgotten this movie came out, and I kind yeah. of panicked because uh, this is a movie I really didn't want to see and I completely forgot about it. The the opening shot's very beautiful. Like it's got kind of a yellowish tint to it, or I'm picturing, or maybe it's black and white. No, no, it wasn't black and white. It was like a really soft visual. And, um, yeah. It's how they should start all movies. It's great. And also with musical stuff, at Fanboy Christian, our friend Christian Ramirez, uh, he uh, didn't even send text in over Twitter. He just sent a gif of the sunrise in the beginning of The Lion King. Which, that's a good one. Several people said The Lion King, uh, yeah. actually. I think that's a good call. That's beautiful. It's so dead on. Everybody can yeah. do it. Yeah, it's a, just a perfect uh, combination of music and visual and also just an immediate punch. Like, you just go, usually mm-hmm. a Disney movie, I would, especially a, a old-school animated one, I would expect, like, a like fairy tale fading swell of music into, like, this enchanted forest or whatever. And Lion King, it's just, boom, mm-hmm. we're on the savannah. Here we go. Why didn't the lions try to eat all the animals when they were there? 
I mean, they're bowing. <laughs> I mean, if I were the Lions, I would have, I would have made the best of a good situation. Here come these gazelles coming to genuflect before well, the Lions. It's a good faith thing. They're coming for like the baby shower or whatever, and you know you don't want to. <laughs> you don't want to eat your guests when you're presenting yeah. your baby. It's, it's like they're so. bowing to a meat grinder. Siri, <laughs> <laughs> cool. how many predators are you going to root for on this episode? First, it was the space yeah. monster. Now it's the lions. I want to circle back a little bit because we, we brought up some musical first lines. Uh, there were also a lot of great first lines from books that folks from Twitter sent our way. I think the one that might have come up the most is, quote, the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. End quote. And that's from uh, the first book of the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. And it's also uh, maybe the entire story. It plays out from there, but that's that's what's going on all of the time. Wow. A lot of people brought that up, huh? I mean, I've never read The Gunslinger. It's great. Is that yeah. It is? Okay. It just seems so simple. I mean, I know simple is good, but... No, I just didn't stick out. Like, I'm reading all these lines. It just didn't stick out as an amazing first line. But maybe that's part of the charm is that it's so simple. It identifies the two people we're going to be talking about and where they are. What What yeah. is it about that line that speaks to you? That's a good question. I think it's that the story is so rich. And he's, he opens with such a Hemingway-ish, just bare description of ah. it. And it sort of evokes how, uh, also just how bare... The world is like and uh, some kind of apocalypse has happened and there's not a lot of resources around and there's not a lot of people or buildings or stuff around. It's just sort of an empty West. Okay. And so that it, it's very evocative of everything you experience as you get into the rest of the thing. Got it. Yeah. There's also sort of related. Uh, we got one from at Thomas J. Spargo. And it is the first line of Neuromancer by William Gibson. The line is, the sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel. And I really, I really like that as scene setting. Mm -hmm. It's both what's going on and also the whole technological vibe of what's happening. Yeah, uh, Jason put a note in this because I, I asked him to come in and do his first line, his favorite first line, because um, you know, he's a writer. And I think I always assume writers have like a lot of first lines that they're thinking about and or that they have to hold up. So <laughs> on this doc that we've got in front of us for this conversation, Jason did not come in and put in a first line, but he did leave a comment on that line. <laughs> so I feel obligated to tell people that he's heard that people interpret that line to be disguised the color of static or snow on an old TV, but the author yeah. had a modern TV that just went to bright blue when it wasn't on a channel. People picture the line totally different based on how old their TV is. It's such a really fascinating example of how like we witness kind of authors or narratives in the past trying to describe the future and the very essence of the technological pastness is kind of stuck in the future. It's kind of like the same way how in, again, not to go back to Star Wars, but when you see in Star Wars, everyone has little CCTV TV screens. It's like you guys have hyperdrives. Couldn't you, you know, invest in some sort of HDTV screens? Um, but it's, you know, right. again, uh, kind of projecting the aesthetic of the 70s and 80s onto the far off future, you know? Yeah, and that sticks out. Uh, yeah. I remembered uh, the opening scene to 2001 Space Odyssey. I don't think several people mentioned it and oh. I didn't see it on here. I thought that would be a good one too because it's, I watched it recently and it, it was beautiful. It's just so pretty. The It's the lineup of the sun, the earth, 
and the opening shot is from behind the moon, and so you're watching the sun. I think that's right. You're watching the sunrise and in this align, but you're placed behind the moon yourself, which is where I think the story is kind of centered around once they get going with the story, and it's just really pretty. This is one a few people sent in at Maxi Taxi is one of them. The line is, it was a bright cold day and the clocks were striking 13. And that is the first line of 1984 by George Orwell. (laughs) I also don't know if he just meant like military time or if he's going full dystopia. That's probably intentional. But uh, (laughs) I imagine if you are in the service, you're probably like, oh, great, 13. It must be lunch. Well, don't you say 1300? Or wait, am I doing that wrong? Yeah, it'd be 1300. Yeah. So yeah, I don't I don't even get that vibe. I, I immediately think, Black well, that's thirteen. Fuck that. That's not a number. This must be a dystopia. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I had one, Marley was dead to begin with, and I just love that it's uh, that's from a Christmas carol and it immediately it launches into how a description of Ebenezer Scrooge and then he sees Marley's face on the on the door. Or am I thinking yeah. you know, I might be thinking of the Mickey Mouse version. But um it just establishes this is a ghost story. We're, we're, about to, we're about to get into a ghost story right here. We're going to start with a dead guy. <laughs> yeah, Christy, not to, not to blow up your spot too much. In the doc, you have the line, and then you wrote, what up, yo? This is a ghost story, which is great because <laughs> yeah. it is. <laughs> at, at that flipping death right away, it's, it's a great – because if it was, I don't know, a Star Wars crawl or something, maybe you would do like, in this world, ghosts walk on the land, and that is the situation <laughs> of this world. And like, it is Victorian England. Some people have a lot of money, and others do not. <laughs> yeah, we, we should just have an episode of nothing but writing Star Wars crawls to. <laughs> that's just- yeah, you listening at home, Photoshop some for us. I want to see that. Yeah, I want to see like. <laughs> Like, it is a dark time in Victorian London. The Galactic Senate it was visited by three ghosts, you know? Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> Nobody put, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times on here. That's a good, well, is it a good line? <laughs> That's the thing. I don't, I like, I, I stick with the ones that I remember and are memorable and, and kind of hook me, but I, I wonder what literature critics think of it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Because it really sounds just like the worst of times. <laughs> <laughs> all worse. <laughs> Once you dig into the book, there's no yeah. best time. That start of Tale of Two Cities by Dickens, it's 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 Tell so famous, it's almost hard to hold it in my brain. Even it's just like wallpaper uh-huh. now. I've I've heard it so many times. <laughs> it's probably amazing. It's probably great. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I think I've, I've read it. I just I want. I can't tell if it's a good line or not. I think it is. I'm gonna go with yeah. Yeah, you you get this one, Dickens. We'll give it to you. I do. Uh, I have one more book line, and it's from The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, because the first thing, it's coming from Huck, the character written by Mark Twain, and he says, you don't know about me without you have read a book by the name of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, but that ain't no matter. And it's packing a lot right up top, because not only is mm-hmm. uh, Huck Finn famous for being very vernacular and being very how actual Americans spoke, it's also the fir- the earliest example I can think of of a piece of art openly talking about the piece of art that it's inspired by or connected to. It feels very postmodern to me in a fun way. Like it's a character who knows he's in another book checking if you know about it in a very helpful way. (laughs) I can't think of another book of that time where the, the writer is speaking right to the reader like that either. Like I can't think of very many like that where, where the character is, 
hey, you, reader, let me tell you something. Like, we're, we're, we're having a conversation here, and this is my side of the story. Like, I can't think of one like that. It's usually not that yeah. straightforward. Yeah, I think the people who do it are usually celebrities or very, very modern authors. And Mark Twain was doing it in the 1800s. It's just really exciting to me. Well, there's also called me Ishmael and his, uh, his oh, yeah. 900 chapters of uh, how to process whale oil. <laughs> yeah, but that Moby Dick, sort of like Tale of Two Cities, it's it's such an icon. It, yeah. It's like not even, I can't even read it, you know? Like it's I just pass over that line because I'm like, oh, of course, the thing everyone's heard. Let's uh let's go from book lines to the modern novel, television shows. We're thinking in general mm-hmm. about TV is uh, demarcated into units of episodes. And so there's a thing of who has the best first episode. Uh, what is the strongest one? A lot of different people suggested community as having one of the best. Uh, they're called pilots when it's the first episode of a TV mm-hmm. show in the industry. Uh, they suggested the community pilot is one of the strongest comedy pilots ever. And I, I think I agree. It's really great. What was before all the characters were really established, though? Did they have the same personalities? They had a lot of them, yeah. There's a term in pilot writing called a welcome episode, which is where the first mm-hmm. episode of your show is one character meeting all the other characters who are already sort of a group. And so it's a welcome episode where Jeff Winger, the lawyer played by Joel McHale, he meets the entire study group and thinks he's too cool for them and then agrees to hang out with them. And especially with comedies, the pilot can be really tricky because, as you guys know, like it's a lot of heavy lifting, setting up the entire world. And then also you're supposed to fit jokes in there, too. And it's just a pilot that manages to do that. My friend Nick Douglas at Too Much Nick, he suggested Arrested Development as another show that pulls off that same thing. Like you meet all, I don't know, 97 Bluths and uh, and you also (laughs) uh, get to have a ton of funny jokes right away. It's great. Yeah, I agree with that one. That's a good one. I suggested the first episode of The Wonder Years, which I just remembered loving because I saw it when I was a kid. And I I don't know. Are you guys familiar with The Wonder Years? It's so good. Did you watch it when you were little? Yeah. Okay. So it's the first one. And and probably because I was the same age as Fred's others. And so it's like, it just feels very real to see a, a kid, you know, the day before the first day of school. And, but the opening episode uses, you know, like some home movie footage. They set up this scene. They do actually kind of do the crawl almost, like where they're setting up, this is 1968. We've got all this going on. But for me, <laughs> I was just enjoying the Wonder Years. And, you know, he's in the, <laughs> he's in the suburbs. And, and then they, you know, give us, give us an introduction to all the big characters. And I just remember watching it and loving, loving that episode. And I think I stuck with the Wonder Years for my whole childhood. Yeah, that's the kind of show where the the universe of it is so lovely to be in that like just any first episode of it is great because it's because it's just the key to the door, mm-hmm. you know, like, great. I'm in. Let's go. Like <laughs> as much as I love Mad Men, I don't remember much about the pilot. So the the pilot is it's probably my favorite first episode of a show. And if people don't know Mad Men, especially in the very first season, they were kind of exploring a world of Don Draper has basically a second life when he's in Manhattan. And then when he's home, he has uh, his wife and his beautiful house in the suburbs of New York City. And then he's a hard drinking, hard uh, cheating ad man in the city. And so the pilot, (laughs) you only see Don Draper 
in Manhattan at his job and meeting women and coming up with ad ideas and carousing. And then the very, very last moment of the entire pilot is when you find out that he has a whole family at home that like he seems like just a single guy until he gets there. It could almost just be a movie and that's Mm -hmm. it. And that's like the punchline. It's really, really, really striking And it's also, you always want the first episode of a TV show to set up the whole rest of your thing. And that payoff of, oh my God, that guy has a family is really thrilling. It's great. (laughs) Like, like, oh, now I want to see this family. Let's go. Oh, oh, I totally forgot about that. That's so good. Yeah, I I totally agree. I I totally blanked on that. But it's such a fascinating show because I think it's one of the weirder shows on TV that plays with uh, the idea of finality and narrative. Whereas, you know, you know, the kind of traditional sitcom will bring back characters, will have, you know, episodes where kind of, you know, Steve Crawl from The Office comes back or something like that. Whereas yeah, Mad, yeah. Men, Mad Men is just willing to dispense with characters with a, like, viciousness you don't see in a lot of programs. Like, um, when Sal when, it, when Sal finally um, oh, yeah. uh, comes out, the last scene we see of Sal is with him in, in the park with a bunch of guys calling his wife and somewhere Sal is still in that park with all those guys having a great time, just making it work. Which is real life. Like people don't always come yeah. back, you know, <laughs> get a call back. Yeah, that's, that's fair. Yeah. That's interesting. That's a fascinating show in that regard. I read something once. I can't remember what it was, but they were arguing that, Mad Men was one of the few dramatic hour-long shows that didn't revolve around people getting killed. Because, like, the other big shows, like Breaking Bad and The Sopranos and Game of Thrones and a lot of other big hour-long dramatic shows, there's a lot of, like, violence and death and murder. And Mad Men will still, either socially or occasionally with characters offing themselves, Mad Men will still work that in. And like you say, Syriac, they'll just throw it into the middle of an episode or a, a season in a very casual way. Like, it's really gripping. And, and often, often on Mad Men, I find that the violence is often, or death is often intermingled with comedy. For example, you have the death of Miss Blankenship. They just throw a, they just throw a blanket <laughs> over her. Yeah. You have the, the farce of Lane, who is, uh, uh, just so many spoilers for Mad Men, but the show's been off the air for, <laughs> what, three years now or something. Um, yeah, when you have Lane out, trying folks. to kill himself. <laughs> He he tries to use a jaguar, but the jaguar malfunctions, so he just ends up kind of sadly hanging himself. There's there's such a weird. Most characters don't even get a dignified death on Mad Men. It's really bizarre in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because we were talking about as far as new things and first. There's also just historical firsts that are particularly amazing. Christy had brought up one about women in the Senate and pants. Yeah. What I think is interesting about this is that it took so long. So women could not wear pants on the Senate floor until 1993. And uh, Mental Floss did a fun kind of history or uh, article of of how it even came about that they were able to wear pants. There were two different senators who decided they were going to wear pants that year. One of them didn't know she couldn't. So, you know, like she starts the, the... year. She's a new senator. It's January. She wears the same kind of clothes she would wear to her other job as a state senator, you know, her previous role. And she gets to the Senate floor and she just finds out then that she wasn't supposed to wear pants. The first senator was Carol Mosley Braun from Illinois. And I, I remember her election. That was a big deal. They have gatekeepers. Like, I, I, well, I don't know what they're called. Doorkeepers. 
who in the past would either like make you go change. So if you're a woman who wore pants, oh, you wanted to, and not just like senators, like journalists, um, runners, I don't know all the different roles that go on on the floor, but any, any woman, it was protocol that you wear a skirt. So if you wore pants to work and you wanted to get on the floor, like you had an office and then you had to go to the Senate floor or whatever, you could change your clothes. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and so one of the women just showed up in pants, not knowing any better. And another one called ahead. I think, I don't, I don't remember who she talked to. It must have been like whoever was in charge of the Senate that year. And she's like, I want to wear some pants. And he didn't say anything. He gave her a nod and she took it as like, okay, girls, we can all wear pants now. Let's do it. And so she had like her staffers wear pants that day. And this is 93. Yeah. <laughs> it's insane. You know, there's women on, on film uh, wearing pants for 50 years already by that point. 50 years. Yeah, this, uh, uh, this article says that the senator who called ahead was Barbara Mikulski, who was a longtime yeah. uh, member of the Senate. And yeah, it's amazing that that all happened in 1993. I, like, I think, Syriac, you were saying, I'm, I'm amazed the men even knew that was a rule. Like, I, I, uh, I, I don't yeah. assume that they were great guys, all of them, who would have been okay with it. I just assume they wouldn't have known they could protest that at all. Yeah, who, who, I mean, who would even be enforcing this? What a waste of time. Yeah. <laughs> waste of time. Yeah, I think they're doing that instead of reading the bills, I think. Uh, but that's fine, uh, yeah. I guess. Well, and also, uh, it also, it also feels like partly a product of a very frustrating thing, was just, which was just that there weren't many women in the Senate until very, very recently in history. And, and when there were, they were often yeah. the spouse of a male senator who died or, or it was some sort of familial connection. It was very rare for women to be elected to the Senate in their own right until around the 1980s, which is crazy. Right, right. And so there wasn't going to be like a group you could rally with and change anything. Like, you know, if you're a woman in the Senate, you're going to have like one or two other people that, that are also women. And, you know, your agenda is probably not going to be based on your pants. So... You didn't have yeah. the opportunity to confer with other women and show solidarity by getting this. Uh, this story you sent about it. It says that Senator Mikulski, who was who called ahead about the pants, she knew she was breaking a long-standing tradition. Right. So she approached a fellow Democrat, Robert Byrd, and asked him about it. Then he had to go ask the parliamentarian of the Senate, which is a whole uh, job apparently. And like it was like I'm just imagining this request being passed among man after man, like in a phone tree or something. <laughs> it's really funny to me. And the other one just showed up. <laughs> I think one of them said it was the it was like they were walking on the moon like that was the response there was some like it just gasped i'm picturing gasp from yeah. everybody in the room man what a what a what a stuffy government body those guys why well, uh that just because that that moonwalk reference uh, the idiom makes me think of the hmm. first spacewalk in history was uh, this was tweeted to us by at c underscore shoop and I had no idea about everything that went into it. The first spacewalk by any human was done by Alexei Leonov, who was a Russian cosmonaut and part of the Voskhod 2 mission in 1965. And with a lot of these milestones in space, it's just someone finally did it. Here we go. And with the first <laughs> spacewalk, he did it, but he also almost died. He had to let the air out of his own spacesuit in space in order to shrink it back down enough to get back inside the ship because oh things happened to it out in space. 
And then in order to do that maneuver, he accidentally knocked the spaceship into like a very dangerous spin up above the Earth that they had to like manually pilot it out of. And so they almost died doing that. And then they also couldn't tell ground control they were doing that because they knew that the Americans were monitoring the Russian communications between the ship and ground control. And they didn't want to tell them all the Americans that anything was going wrong and give the Americans propaganda. So I'm imagining as the Russians are just cartoonishly about to die, they're just saying, and everything's fine. I continue to orbit the Earth. In a normal way, <laughs> as they're like spinning and throwing up, and you know it's amazing. And then it's like uh, just f- still falling downstairs from there. Like they had reentry problems landing on Earth. They missed the spot they aimed for, and they ended up in a forest full of wolves and bears. And they had to use a pistol they packed to like hold off the wolves and the bears. And then they had to, the cosmonauts had to once rescue crews came, uh, they couldn't land a helicopter because of the trees, so they had to ski several miles from there, which is the most Russian thing. And um, it was a like terrifying death struggle to survive it. And not only is that spacewalker a guy who survived that, he's still with us at 83 years old. What a guy. Really great. Wow. Okay, so this made me think of, it's amazing. I'm feeling like gravity pulled some of these stories into their narrative because it's just one thing after another with her. Yeah. You know, even like when she gets to to Earth, she's still got to try to figure out how to survive somehow. But I feel like there's a missed opportunity Somebody needs to make a comedy out of this. Like, this should be like a separate <laughs> movie. I can picture because it's so classic. All the different things happening, and they have to keep it cool and yeah. fight bears. Eventually, yeah, this is an assumption. Let's let's stop everything and, and write a comedy based on our first space walk. Space walk, yeah. Well, I, yeah, now I actually, there's a movie on the way that I haven't seen yet called The Death of Stalin, and it's by Armando Iannucci, who did In the Loop and Veep, and uh, it's actual Russian history, but just done by funny British people. I want that for this spacewalk thing. I want I want to see, like, very funny British comedians pretending to be Russian cosmonauts, pretending to be fine when everything's <laughs> blowing up. We also, we got a milestone on Twitter from at the Frabjus one. And he talked about the photographer who took the first picture of flight, the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk, the picture of that flight succeeding. Apparently, the guy who took the picture of that milestone was taking the first picture he had ever taken in his life. Oh, nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> They're never going to beat that. They should not. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful picture. It's very clear. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, we'll link to it. It's, it. It looks great. Like he, he nailed it by accident. And according to the story, he uh, held a camera for the first time when they gave him one in the car when they were driving to um, Kitty Hawk, North Carolina to do their flight. Like they were like, this is a camera. And he was like, why don't I try what this could ever do? And I think 99.9% of us, our first picture is like our own face or just checking <laughs> if the thing works. And... <laughs> And he captured human flight. He did it. His name was John T. Daniels. Good for him. And this isn't even like point and click, right? This is going to be like 15 different steps that it takes to actually <laughs> capture the picture. And then for development, there were so many things that can go wrong that it really is a big deal that he was able to get yeah. this image. Yeah, actually, this is a story in The Verge, and they describe the camera as a Gundlach Corona 5 by 7 inch glass plate view <laughs> camera. Which sounds terrifying to me. I, 
am not good enough at things to even think about that. And so he had to focus it, prepare a film holder, then somebody else needed to squeeze the camera shutter and then uh, release the bulb once the uh, to like make the picture happen. And he actually he did it in conjunction with Orville Wright while uh, Wilbur was in the or actually, no, he set it up with Orville. Then Orville ran over to the flyer and got in it with Wilbur. And then this guy like <laughs> took his first ever picture of one of the biggest events in American history. It's great. The camera is so complicated that it required the pilot to participate in setting yeah. it up before he went and flew the first plane. <laughs> yeah. Regardless of the flight, I'm impressed by their uh, you know, dexterity and acumen at taking a photo like that. Yeah, really. They're just good at stuff. Like, yeah, good for them. <laughs> <laughs> There's one first I like that I learned while traveling, uh, it would have been earlier this year, about the state of West Virginia. Not a lot of people know a lot about West Virginia, I don't think. It's coal country. It's west of Virginia. Mm -hmm. You know, who knows? And (laughs) it, it achieved statehood through war. It is the only state in the U.S. that was formed as a consequence of there being a war going on because it was made a state during the Civil War, and it was a product of Virginia joining the Confederacy, but a lot of the people in what's now West Virginia not being interested in being in the Confederacy. And so it was admitted in June of 1863 through a kind of wartime powers thing. And that's that's very metal. That's a very cool state origin. I'm as, really into that. As a union state, they, they joined the union? Yeah, so they broke off they, and uh, joined cool. the union. Yeah, there were like enough counties in what was then a giant state of Virginia that had no interest in being in the Confederacy that uh, they held a convention in Wheeling and uh, agreed to be unionists and join the union if the union would have them. And so it was just like an act of the government during war to make it a state. Wow. Yeah, isn't that cool? Now now, now we all know something yeah. about West Virginia and it's really fun. I like Absolutely. it. One more I just want to pull out from a cracked article. This is called Six Famous Firsts You Learned in History Class Are Total BS. And uh, it's by Eddie Rodriguez and John Champion. And they pick out something that is one of the biggest inventions in history, which is the printing press. And it's widely understood to be an invention by Johannes Gutenberg and understood to be done in the 1400s. But in actuality, the idea of metal movable type and doing a printing press from that came up a couple centuries earlier in Korea, which is cool on its own. And then also it specifically Mm -hmm. came up because Korea was being invaded by the Yuan dynasty, which was a uh, Chinese dynasty of uh, sort of a Chinese Mongol thing. And they were invading Korea, and Korea wanted to preserve certain religious texts that people were afraid would be destroyed. And so they were like, we need a way to print a lot of copies. And how would that happen? Let's invent the printing press. So it's the whole thing is a product, uh, sort of like West Virginia, I guess, of active war and people finding a way to make things work. Oh, did this turn into a, a podcast that celebrates war? I think it did. I think I think we've just celebrated war twice. <laughs> how war yeah. how war leads to good things. And lions and space monsters. I mean we have a lot of a lot of interests. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Christy Harrison, to Syriac Lamar, and to a legion of pals like you who helped us build this show. 
our footnotes this week linked to a heck of a lot of culture and history that is worth talking about. We're also going to link to a story about Glenn Burke that there wasn't quite time to get to. He is an amazing figure in sort of American sports history and cultural history. He's the first professional athlete in a major American sport to have notably come out as a gay person after he played. And he also invented the high five, mainly because he wanted to celebrate his teammate hitting a home run. As his teammate Dusty Baker came back to home plate, he held up a hand for him. Dusty was like, "Uh, I guess, and hit his hand with his hand. And then he got a high five. That's where it's at. Glenn Burke also had a very tough life. The Los Angeles Dodgers traded him away for being gay and also started selling high five t-shirts in the same year because uh, the past is tough. Anyway, a lot of fun information in there. Enjoy the footnotes this week. What else is going on? We've got a new episode of Kurt Vonnegut's for you imminently. It'll go up tomorrow, assuming I get our Kronos and Classic Infundibula lined up right. If you don't know what that thing I said is, uh, no worries, it's a Kurt Vonnegut thing. And the Cracked Podcast, this show, has its first live episode of 2018 very soon. January 13th at Los Angeles' UCB Sunset Theater. We're doing almost too fun of an episode. I'm calling the premise of this one, History's Funniest Goofs. Love that name. Because history, while often very sad also contains a lot of just fun jokes and pranks and things by the people in it. Did you know angry British people drew an insulting naked picture of Oliver Cromwell across an entire English countryside? Did you know the Sistine Chapel features snakes biting the crotches of Michelangelo's enemies? And did you know there's more fun stuff from there? Come out and see it. We're doing a panel of Caitlin Gill, Christine Medrano, Blake Wexler, and myself Saturday, January 13th for just seven bucks. Tickets will go on sale soon if they're not already at sunset.ucbtheater, that's theater with an R-E, dot com. And as far as this show goes, our theme music is Chicago Falcon by the Budos Band. Our episode was engineered by Sam Kiefer and edited by Chris Souza. If you love the show, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A real fun way to begin your year with a lot of other people's party pictures. You can find me on Twitter under the name at Alex Schmitty. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And we will be back next week with more 2018 Cracked Podcast. How about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.